Good morning. Matthew 16, 20 through 25. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Amen. Thank you, Scott. He's got a great voice, doesn't he? <laughs> um, so we're in week three of our series, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. This is a nine-week campaign that we're doing for the fall this is something that we're not only preaching uh, about, but our life groups are discussing, or at least most of our life groups are discussing, tackling, wrestling with. Uh, there's a book that goes along with it. We're not preaching the book. Um, the book is a supplemental help. I encourage you to read it, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. We ended up getting some copies that are on the table. If anybody had trouble financially with it, we ended up getting some free copies. You can talk to the team back there. Um, but the goal is for us to wrestle with some of these principles, because God, as we've tried to established the first two weeks, wants us to be emotionally mature because that's part of being a disciple. He, he wants us to have the joy and the peace that are rooted in him, react to things in ways that don't uh, make him look bad. Last week we discussed the first principle, which was avoid the human doing trap. Uh, or in the book, it's called being before doing. And we talked about how we are human beings made in the image of God, but because of sin, that image of God has been distorted. And because of sin, we've been separated from God. And therefore, we are always on this hunt to do in order to be something, to accomplish, to, to uh, win at, to be good at something, to control things in order to feel like we can justify our existence, uh, earn our worth, show people that, hey, this is who I am. I'm somebody, right? And Jesus came to rescue us from that, that, that need to do so that we can once again just be a child of God, connected to him, declared righteous. I am declared a son of the God of the universe, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. And we talked about how in order to remember that, our souls need reminding of that truth, we need to be still with God. We need to be still with him, take time with him to remember that he is God. He's God. And remember what he's declared about us. So that was last week. And I think last week's principle is the principle on which everything else is built. We have to get that one down. So if you missed last week, I would encourage you to, to, to listen to the sermon and read chapter 3 of the book because that's just um, an important principle to get down. Us taking time, following Jesus' example. Jesus spent time with the Father. We must spend time with our Lord. So that was last week. This week, 
Follow the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus. It's chapter 4 of the book. It corresponds to that. Again, I'm not preaching the book. There's a lot of good things in that chapter of the book, I think. Um, I actually once wrote a book about this, this, this topic called The Dangers of American Christianity. Don't go buying it. I got a bunch of free copies. I can hook you up. Um, but it's, there's a lot that we could talk about with this topic. And so I was praying about what, what did we zero in on for just one sermon. And, and what I felt led to do, I want to ask the question, because I think this is, this, this question, how you answer this question, does God want you to be happy? How you answer this question determines whether you're going to follow the crucified Jesus or the Americanized Jesus. Does God want you to be happy? First answer, the first option, and, and, you know, I, I think it kind of boils down to three broad categories, three ways we can answer this question. Number one, first option is this. God wants me to be happy, so therefore I'm justified in breaking his commands if they don't suit me right now. Now some of you laugh, but I've heard this numerous times from people who are going through something and they're tired of sticking to their convictions and their values because things are not like getting easier. And their response is, but God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to go this way instead. And they compromise values and convictions that they once held dear because it doesn't feel like those things are working anymore. I've heard people say, I've tried it, I've tried Christianity, it doesn't work. God must want me to be happy anyway. I remember a woman saying that to me a few years ago about something, and I was, oh, my heart was breaking for the decision she was making. And her reasoning, her justification was, God wants me to be happy. Now, how do you respond to that? Well, some people respond with option number two. Some church folks, some Christians will say, no, God doesn't care about your happiness. He just cares about your holiness. And it sounds good. It sounds good. It sounds good on the surface. But as we've talked about in the last two weeks, when we have just a focus on external holiness, external measures of holiness, well, that, that can lead to a lot of sourpuss Christians walking around, holding grudges, being jealous of other people, having insecurities that they're not dealing with, having grief that they're not dealing with. And they're not growing and they're not maturing the way they need to. And so what I think is the most biblical response to that question, does God want you to be happy, is this one. I think this is the Bible. God cares about my happiness, my joy, my peace, but the pathway to true happiness is Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness requires death. If you believe that, you're going to be more prone to follow the crucified Jesus. If you believe option number one, you're going to be more prone to follow the Americanized Jesus. Christ-likeness is the pathway to true, holy happiness and joy. But it requires death. Death to pride, death to sin, and death to the false ideas about Jesus that are out there. And because we live in America, there's Americanized uh, distortions of what it means to follow Jesus. Just like in every culture of the world, there are distortions about what it means to follow Jesus. There is something broken about every culture. I'm not knocking America. I love living in America. Grateful to live in America, but there are aspects of our culture, the air we breathe, the strongholds that are older over our nation that cause distortions in how we view Jesus and what it means to follow him. And what I want to talk about is the five P's that we get sucked into uh, clinging to because we're Americans. I want to talk about the five P's. The book talks about other things. I want to talk about the five P's. We all want these five P's and we think that this is what's going to make us happy. 
possessions, pleasures, praise, power, protections. Now, everybody in the world wants these things, not just Americans. But here's the thing. In America, we can have all five of these things in an insane amount compared to the rest of the world. And further, because of the air we breathe and how our country is founded, there is this idea in our souls that we are entitled to the amount of these things that we want at any given moment. So let me, let me, let me back up. I'll go through these one time. Possessions. Everybody in the world wants a roof over their head. We get to have multiple roofs over our head. We get to have multiple cars. We get to have uh, uh, renovations and decks and phones and gadgets and iPads. We, we get to have it and we get to hit, you know, pro, uh, what do you, uh, when you check out of Amazon, uh, process your order, whatever it is. You get to hit that button at 9 o'clock at night and by the time you wake up the next day, it's on your doorstep. You don't have to wait for, to get your possessions anymore. Used to be you have to at least wait until you have time to go to the store. Not anymore. They're working while you're sleeping. Some 20-year-olds running up to your doorstep at 6 a.m. dropping this little thing off. We get to open it while we're having coffee. We can have our possessions. America is a place where we can consume. And then there's pleasures. Food and drink. We get to satisfy our appetites. Entertainment. Being stimulated, having adrenaline rushes, going on vacations, relaxing. America is a place for that. We get to have it. Because of our uh, history of economic prosperity, we get it. And we're prone to believe that we're entitled to as much as we want. Like kids in our country, they have a hard time being hungry for like 10 minutes. I'm glad that my kids get to have three square meals a day and multiple snacks. But if they're like hungry for five minutes, I'm starving. Because we have it in abundance, and they're entitled to having their, sad, their appetites met right then and there. And they're just a mirror of the rest of our culture, of us, right? I want it, I need it now. Praise. We all want to be liked by people. Included. Patted on the back. Celebrated. Appreciated. Applauded. Known for something. And we live in a culture of celebrities. We live in a time where we can put something on social. We can, we can take a photo of our dinner and we have friends who don't know anything else to do but like it. And then we feel good that they, oh, somebody liked my photo of my dinner. And your friends, they didn't know what to do with that. They just liked it because they're like, what are, what are they doing? But they liked it. And now you feel good and you get the little dopamine rush so you keep doing it. I keep taking photos of silly things and posting them. We live in a culture where we can be known in our hometown for playing sports or playing a, an instrument. We can be known, we can be liked, we can be included, and that can be addicting. Power, right? It's a culture of winning, achieving, accomplishing. We live in a, a culture where uh, in, a, in an argument with somebody or, or a confrontation with somebody, we have this idea, don't let anybody take advantage of you. You get the last word in. You get the last word in. Right? In a text exchange, oh, I'm, oh you're not going to get away with that. Always one up in somebody, and that's celebrated in our culture. Even political power, right? We're entitled to it. My policies that I think need to go through, I, I get to be part of the winning team. We live in a constitutional republic, a, a, a democracy where we get to vote, and so somebody's win that we voted for is my win. And if my guy loses, then I lost. 
but I get a rematch in four years. Or two years with midterms. We get, like, it's like, it's like we get to ride on the back of Rocky in the ring with the political atmosphere in our country. Like, we get to feel powerful if our guy wins or our girl wins. And then lastly, protections. Everybody in the world wants to be protected, wants to feel secure, wants to feel safe. But in America, man, we get protections that are unheard of in the history of humanity. We all get our you know, own security systems or gated communities. We get laws that protect us and praise God for those things. But we can get addicted to them. We can feel entitled to them. We can buy into the, the lie that we need all these things in the, the measure that we think we need them to be happy. And then, on top of feeling entitled to it because we live in our culture, when we place our faith in Jesus, then the devil has a tendency to come after our prideful little hearts and use the systems of the world which play out for us in this culture. And then it leads to this belief. That Jesus died so I can gain these five Ps and live the American dream. Now most people in our church would say, no, I don't believe that. That's the prosperity gospel. I don't buy into that nonsense. And, 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 and we will see somebody on TV spouting that off and we'll be like, uh-uh. That's, that's, that's craziness. But most of us believe this. In our souls we believe this. You know how we know that when we believe this? The emotions that come out of us when those things are threatened. That signifies and indicates and outs us that, oh, you actually do believe this. When you don't get the possessions that you think you need right now, are you a little antsy and a little anxious? Are you a little jealous of somebody else who has it? When you're not being liked and praised, when you won't have a conversation with somebody that's needed because you think they won't like you afterwards, that fear, you get angry at somebody when you have a little debate with them about something and you can't rest and feel at peace until you get the final word and exercise your power. Our emotions betray us. So, big long introduction, but what we're going to look at is this passage where Peter has his own cultural expectations for Jesus and how Jesus had to correct him and in correcting him, uh, he corrects all of us. So, let's dive back into this passage in Matthew 16 because we want to follow the crucified Jesus. We want to follow the real Jesus and as great as our country is, we don't want to follow the Americanized Jesus because it will lead us down a path of more anxiety, more depression, fear of losing the five Ps that are so precious to us. So Lord, just open our hearts, open our eyes for the remainder of our time together. We don't just want to hear from you, Jesus. We want to be more free so that we can be more mature emotionally, so that we can represent you, so that we can bring you glory in this world. I pray in your name. You died and rose again so I can pray this. You're alive. You're hearing this prayer. Your spirit is at work in us. It's at work in this room. I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here a little bit different. In your name, amen. All right, so 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So, from that time on, what time? Well, Jesus, the passage right before this, um, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter confesses, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, right on. And so from that time on, he'd already been doing miracles and teaching about the kingdom of God. But now that his disciples are confessing that he's the Messiah, from that time on, he begins to explain to them that as the Messiah, he must suffer and die. And then he'll rise again. But this would be crazy for his disciples to hear because even though it talked about this in the scriptures, in their Old Testament scriptures, that the, that the, the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, their cultural expectation, right? They lived in a culture. They lived in, 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 in a tradition where they were um, given a certain viewpoint, a certain uh, perspective on the, what the Messiah would do. So they had a tendency to kind of gloss over the stuff about the Messiah's suffering. And their expectation was that he was going to come as a conquering ruler, a political ruler. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to usher a, a kingdom of peace that was uh, much like the, the kingdom under King David, but better. So when Jesus said that the Messiah is going to suffer and die, it, it, it would be crazy for them. It would be kind of like, I, I've used this before, it would be kind of like a presidential candidate calling his campaign staff and volunteers together and be like, listen, everybody, listen, listen, listen. You guys have been working hard. But I must lose the election next year. Everybody be looking at each other like, wait, what did he say? Then what are we doing this for? Like that's, what they weren't, they weren't hearing like, hey guys, this is going to be hard. We're going to take some knocks. We're, I'm going to die. The Messiah is not supposed to die. Not, not before he conquers his political enemies and certainly not at the hands of his political enemies. That would mean he's not the Messiah. So it would be so perplexing to them. And that's why Peter, being the wise guy that he was, verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, I don't think Peter was trying to be rebellious. I don't think he was being arrogant. I think Peter saw Jesus having a, a moment of discouragement, and it was up to Peter to encourage him. Peter maybe saw himself as the campaign manager who maybe would pull aside that candidate and be like, come here, come here, come here. Let's, let's, you're kind of confusing all the volunteers. You're just having a moment. You've been lacking sleep lately. You're going to win this. We got you. You just need a self-esteem boost. I think that's kind of what Peter want, felt like he needed to do. Come here, Jesus. Come here, come here. We got you. You're not going to die. People love you. This is going to work out. I think Peter was trying to do that for Jesus, but Peter didn't understand that there was a different path laid out for the Messiah. He had to suffer and he had to die. Why? Because he had to conquer sin and the grave. Before he's going to conquer and rule over the nations, before all the nations bow to him, which will happen, his first coming, he had to conquer sin. The greatest enemy to the Jewish people wasn't the Romans. It was a sin in the human heart. And he had to deal with it. And he had to conquer death. And he had to make a way so that all nations, all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, could come to 
into the kingdom of God through him. Peter didn't get that. He didn't, he didn't grasp that. So Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan, adversary. You don't understand what's going on here. You're a stumbling block to me. See, I think Satan, the real devil, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. So I believe Satan was tempting Jesus throughout his life. You don't have to go down this path of suffering. You don't have to do it the Father's way. Flex your muscles. Attack your enemies. Crush them. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. And now here's Peter kind of feeding into it. You're not going to die. You don't have to die. This isn't going to happen to you. So Jesus like, no, no, no. You don't understand whose side you're speaking for right now. Get behind me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're seeing this from a human point of view. You can't imagine that my father has ordained a plan and a path for me that includes suffering and death. You can't fathom that. You don't get it. But you got to trust it. You got to fall in line. Peter had a distorted view of what it meant to follow Jesus because of his culture and his background and how he grew up. He had a distorted view of what it meant to have a Messiah. And like Peter, we get stuck in our own narrow-minded understanding of our faith when we believe we have to have those five Ps in order to be happy. We need Jesus to give us our possessions and our pleasures and our praise. We need people to like us and we need the power now and we need the protections now. And if I get all that, then I'll be fine. Then I'll be at peace. And we can't imagine a world in a way that the Father would lead us down a path following Jesus where one of these would feel threatened or we'd have to sacrifice one of these at any given time. And in case we're thinking, well, that was just a moment in time between Jesus and Peter. I don't think that applies to us. All right, that's our tendency. You know, Peter dismissed some things from his scriptures and I think we tend to dismiss things too. I don't think that applies to us living over here. So Jesus then said to his disciples, all of them, the 12, whoever wants to be my disciple, so whoever would be anybody, any place and time and culture, including us here in 2023 in America, whoever here in true life wants to be Jesus' disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must pick up their cross and follow me. What does that mean, pick up my cross? We have this thing that people say, they, they talk about a trial or a burden. They say, oh, this is your cross to bear or this is my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus was talking about. That wouldn't be incongruent with what Jesus meant here. Um, what Jesus was saying, when, when somebody picked up their cross, that was them on death row. Like you pick up your cross, that meant you're, you're walking to the site of crucifixion. That meant your life as you knew it was over. So what Jesus is saying is whoever wants to be my disciple, the life you knew it before is over. You, you let it go. You put it on the altar. You, you give it to me to follow me. 
You don't say, I'll follow you, Jesus, so long as you don't mess over here with my possessions and people still like me over here and I got this friend group that I really like and I don't want them to think weird about me, anything weird about me, and I got this power. We don't do that. We let it go. Because whoever clings to their life, wants to save their life, will lose it. Whoever holds tightly to what they think is going to fulfill them, Jesus is saying, it's going to end up choking you in the long run. Now I think for some people, they completely reject Jesus for this reason. No, no, no. Jesus is going to mess with my life. I want things like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting here. I'm, not, I'm rejecting him. I'm not coming to him. I'm not bowing to him. And so they're cut off from him for all eternity. But I think even Jesus' followers, even born-again Christians, even those who belong to him, have seasons and have a tendency to say, no, 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 don't mess with this. And when we do that, we miss out on the eternal life, the quality of life that Jesus came to give us. When we say, no, 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 don't, but no, I, gotta, I, I got to have this, Jesus. I'll follow you so long as you don't mess with this. We end up missing out in the long run. And a lot of us can even attest to times when we've clung so tightly to something that it's created such anxiety for us. We've had such fear of losing it. It's created uh, a fence between other people. And so Jesus says, the solution is, whoever loses their life for me will find it. You lay it down. You be willing to lay it down. This happens in big ways, in big moments in our life. Maybe he's going to call you to go uh, serve somewhere in a land that doesn't have the protections that we do in America. Can you do it? Well, no, no, no. Not until they change the laws over there. Jesus says, no, no. If you're willing to lay down your life for me, you'll find it. You'll find real life. I've shared this story before. I'll probably keep sharing it because it's part of my story. Uh, when I was in my 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, uh, 27, I think. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Um, it was 2008. And I had been praying. I was living in Los Angeles. I had been out there for eight years. I, I, I had been praying for a year about moving back to New Jersey to help start a church with Jeff Borkowski back there in a, in a small group. I didn't want to go back to New Jersey. I, I had grown up here. I didn't want to come back. No offense. And what I kept saying to God for the year that I was praying about it was, God, it took me eight years to build a life here. It took me eight years to build a life here. I kept saying that. I would walk the streets of LA. I was praying about it. God was bothering me about this decision. I was like, yeah, but God, it took me eight years to build a life here. I remember writing it in my journal. It took me eight years. I got, I got a place of my own now. I got an investment property. I got friends. I got a community. I got a stable job. I got these things. I got the five Ps. And then one day I was at a conference in 2008, in October of 2008 in Atlanta, Georgia. And some speaker was preaching. And that preacher later had to step down for alcoholism. But praise God for this message. Right? The way God uses us broken people. This message where he mentioned this verse, verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. 
And I went outside at that conference. It was like a rainy day. And I remember thinking, that's exactly what I've been saying to you. God, I don't want to lay down the life that it took me eight years to build. And it was like God saying, it ain't your life, fool. It's mine. And you didn't build it. I did. And I want you to lay it down now. New season. New season to trust me with. And that's hard. It's hard to lay down one of those five Ps. It's hard to lay them all down in certain seasons. And that wasn't the last time God confronted me with something that I was clinging too tightly to. So there's going to be major turning points in some of our lives. Are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to leave something that maybe we get celebrated for because we're really good at it? And God's like, I want to lead you into a season where you're going to do something that you're not that good at. But you're going to do it for me. You're going to lay down the praise that you're getting over there or the power and the influence that you have over there. You're going to lay it down for me. Maybe in small ways. Maybe there's a conversation that needs to happen with somebody, a loved one. And you need to have that conversation even at the risk of them not liking you. But it's your effort to love them well. And they might not love you back in return. Can you do it for Jesus? Or maybe there's something with somebody where you just have to forgive them and stop talking about it because your thing is power. You need to feel in control. You need to feel like you get the last word in. And you need just to shut your mouth and say, you know what, I'm sorry for my part in all this. And I'm done trying to like convince you of how you hurt. I I'm sorry for how I hurt you and I'm just going to leave it there. So it happens in big ways and small ways. But Jesus says, will you lay it down for me? Don't buy into this idea that happiness is found in clinging to those five Ps. Follow the crucified Jesus. He's got life for us. More and more and more of that life every day. This eternal life. This new quality of life. So here's what I want to do. I want to end with three action steps. Last week I ended with one action step. I want to end with three today. You guys ready for them? Great. Identify, number one, identify which of the five Ps you're clinging to the most right now. And it doesn't have to have the P word. It could be whatever, right? The book talks about successism and popularity and greatism, the, the need to be great. Use whatever word you want, but what are you clinging to the most right now? What are you holding on to? What feels threatened and is bringing out, exposing anxiety or fear in you? Identify that. Just take this next week and identify it. Look for patterns. Look for moments where you feel this little check engine light in your soul. Where you maybe feel, start to feel defensive. That's number one. Number two. Fast with us on Thursday and pray for this hold to break. During this campaign, we're fasting together every other Thursday. Last Thursday... About 15 of us, 14, 16, somewhere around there, we're a part of this. And fasting is just a way of saying, God, I don't need to satisfy my appetite every moment. I don't belong to this world. This world doesn't have a hold on me. I want to seek your presence instead. You're better than the pleasures of food. And as we seek Him, and as our physical bodies detach from its need, 
and this dependency on food, other things can break as well. I've noticed, generally speaking, although I have days where I'm just irritable when I'm fasting, but, but generally speaking, I've noticed more peace, I'm less defensive, and I, I feel the need to control things less. It's just me. But we're going to pray together. Whoever signs up for this, this Thursday, this is the next one. It's every other Thursday. We're just skipping breakfast and lunch, eating whatever you want after that. Uh, and, and we're just praying. We're going to pray for whatever it is, whatever your pee is that needs to break. We're going to pray for that. And pray for other things for our church. And of course, around the world. So you can sign up for that. You can email me. You can text me if you have my number. I'm not going to put it out there right now. Uh, you can scan the code in the back table and get on the list. You'll find a way if, you're, if you want to take this step. And then lastly, sorry. Uh, okay, I got to go through that again. There we go. <laughs> We're going to receive communion right now. As the band uh, leads us in worship, we're going to respond by singing, by praising God, and we're going to receive communion. There's two stations down here, and there's one station in the back. Make it a little easier, less waiting in line. Um, but I want us to remember what we're remembering with communion. As we take this communion, we're remembering that Jesus gave his body, represented by the cracker. And his blood was spilled, represented by the juice on the cross, sacrificial lamb, paying for our sins so that our sins can be forgiven, yes. Saved from the penalty of our sins, yes. Spending eternity with God, yes. But also so that now, here and now, we get the following. I want to list off a few things. We get him as our greatest possession. He's our greatest possession. Not our cars and our toys and our trinkets, all the things that fall apart and people scratch and break. And then we have to wonder, do we have to ask them to pay for it and all the anxiety that goes with it? Jesus is our greatest possession. We get him. He made a way so that we can get him. That's what we're remembering. We're remembering that his presence is better than all the worldly pleasures. That's another thing about fasting. We're saying, God... I'm reminding myself that I don't need this right now. I need you. I need your presence. And I get it. I get this intimacy. That, that brings us back to last week. Spending time with God. We get to be with him. And his presence goes before us in every aspect of our daily lives. We get his eternal acceptance and affirmation. We're adopted into his family when we trust in Jesus. And you know what that means? That means we are free from needing human praise. We don't need people to always like us. They're not always going to like us. They're going to misunderstand us sometimes. They're going to falsely accuse us sometimes. And Jesus is saying, it's okay. Remember, it's okay. Today, as you receive this communion, I got you. I think the world of you. You're my beloved son and daughter. Rest in that. What else do we get? We can rest in him being all-powerful, fighting our battles for us. We don't have to control and manipulate to win our battles. We don't have to convince spouses and kids and family members and friends that they got to shape up and they, they're wrong here. Let Jesus fight your battles. His spirit's more powerful than our gift of persuasion. And I'll say this, very, very important at this point, 
His spirit is more powerful and more influential and more effective at expanding his, God's kingdom in this country than political power. Remember that. But we don't need political power when we got the spirit of God working through the church. Praise God when you, things are going well at times. And then lastly, we're protected in him even if we die for him. We're protected. Even if we die, we're protected. We're in his hands. The worst that can happen, if God calls you somewhere where it's dangerous, and you're called to go there for Jesus, like those missionaries are right now in Israel, they're protected. They're in his hands. That's what we're remembering. Amen?